Scaries Audio Guide Introduction Welcome to Scaries, one of the most picturesque and historic towns on the Dublin coast. Hugging the waters of Fingal's Irish Sea coast, its panoramic views extend far to the north, taking in the Cooley and Mourne Mountains and down to the south to Hoth and beyond. This is a coast of contrast. The town of Skerries is an energetic place, home to a community of vibrant social and cultural activity. With its wide open spaces and the offshore islands which speckle the horizon, this is also a peaceful haven, a refuge for wildlife and heritage alike. The landscape has provided inspiration for artists throughout the centuries, including Percy French, who is said to have written the famous song Mountains of Morn, following a holiday to the town where he sat regarding the view of the mountains sweeping down to the sea. This audio guide will tell you the story of the town of Skerries, its harbour and the islands beyond. We will journey from its origins to the present day. In the episodes that follow, you will hear tell of Vikings and pirates, crusaders and rebels, great landlords and great industry. And you'll soon discover the cast of characters even include St. Patrick himself, who left a permanent mark on the Skerries coast. Along with the past, this guide will also explore the importance of the present through the ecological and especially the avian wonders to be found just off Skerries. Whether you prefer to stroll down Strand Street or along South Strand, take in the sights and sounds of Skerries Mills or Red Island's Martello, or set sail from the harbour, this guide will tell you the tales that lie behind it all. But to begin, let's travel back through the mists of time to consider the earliest origins of this very special place. Origins of a Coastal Community Skerries has been the home of coastal communities for time immemorial. Their presence in this landscape stretches back at least nine millennia as hunter-gatherers spread over the land in the wake of the retreating ice sheets. These Mesolithic or Middle Stone Age people left behind few traces, but finds of their stone tools around Skerries at places like Barnagira and town parks betray their presence. They were here to stay. The tools of Ireland's first Neolithic farmers have also been found around Skerries, while its Bronze Age and Iron Age inhabitants left behind evidence for life and death at places like Balili. Barnagira and Baltrasna. But it was during the early medieval and medieval periods that Skerries really began to take shape. More than a thousand years ago, this land was part of the Irish kingdom of Brega. This was a major lordship that stretched across North Dublin and parts of modern Louth and Meath, and even included the great royal site of Tara. A rich tapestry of secular and religious settlements blossomed along this stretch of coast, with an important ecclesiastical site developing on St. Patrick's Island and another developing at Lusk, where a 9th century round tower still stands today. Inevitably, 
This prosperity attracted the envy of outsiders, including the Vikings. It was their sustained influence on this stretch of coast that gave Skerries its name. Skerries has its origins in the Old Norse Skær, meaning a sea rock or reef. The coming of the Anglo-Normans in the late 12th century saw the influence of the Gaelic-Irish and Dublin Vikings give way. In the centuries that followed, the focus of medieval skerries was around the Priory of Homepatrick, which moved onto the mainland from St. Patrick's Island in 1220. This centre of religious activity stood where Homepatrick's cemetery is today. For more than 300 years, Homepatrick remained the main focus of activity at Skerries, until Henry VIII forced its doors to close forever in 1538. For the town that had begun to develop nearby, a new era was beginning. Skerries passed through the hands of Thomas Fitzpatrick and the Earl of Pomond until the Hamiltons of Hackettstown took ownership in 1721. In the decades that followed, they transformed Skerries into its modern form, redeveloping both the street layout and the harbour. When imagining the future of Skerries, the Hamiltons had looked towards the sea, just as so many had done in the centuries before them. Indeed, you could say that to understand the history of Skerries, you have to understand its relationship with the sea, one that has brought the town and its people many highs, and many lows. Skerries and the Sea It is impossible to understand Skerries without understanding its relationship with the Irish Sea. Just as the town owes its name to its coastal position, many of its past people owed their livelihoods to the rich waters that enveloped the settlement. It was this maritime setting that attracted Skerry's first inhabitants and which brought the Vikings down on its shores. A pier has stood at Skerry's for at least five centuries, dating all the way back to the wooden landing spot constructed by the Prior of Homepatrick in 1496. Its importance was already apparent by 1575, when the new Lord Deputy, Henry Sidney, made landfall at Skerries en route to taking up his new position at the head of the Irish government. But it was in the 1700s the harbour as we see it today began to take shape. This was when the town's landlords, the Hamiltons, sought to improve and expand the old pier jutting out from Red Island. By the end of the century their efforts had helped propel Skerries into one of the leading fishing ports in Ireland. As the 19th century dawned, Skerry's boats became a regular sight everywhere from Killybegs to the Baltic Sea. While the fishermen traded in herring, others transported limestone from nearby Milverton Quarries, which was renowned for its quality and has been used as building material for centuries. Others transported potatoes for the Irish and English markets. A long decline in the late 19th and 20th centuries saw much of the fleet depart Skerries, and today only a few fishing vessels call it home. 
but the 1970 pier extension combined with the determination of the local community made sure that Skerry's Harbour remains a vibrant spot. It has reinvented itself as a hub for the recreational sailing community, typified by the popular Skerry Sailing Club. Although the focus of the harbour may have changed, echoes of its past can still be found around the town by those who look for them. They are fossilised in some of the local names that endure, places like the Barkyard, where sails were once tanned or barked to preserve them, and the Rope Walk, where rope was produced to supply the Skerry's fleet. Of course, not everyone who made their living from the sea around Skerries did so by strictly legal means. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the cliffs and strands along this part of the Dublin coast were famed for smugglers and pirates. Some even became famous. One was the 18th century pirate Jack Connor, known by his aliases Jack Field and Jack the Bachelor. He is said to have had his base in Smuggler's Cave, which can still be visited just south of Skerries. Jack was so famous, he was even remembered in ballad. The lover may sigh, the courtier may lie, and Croesus his treasure amass. All these joys are but vain, they are blended with pain. I stand behind field and my glass. Despite their romantic image, these men had to take fearful risks to sneak their cargo in undiscovered on dark and often dangerous waters. The sea can be a cruel mistress, as Skerries and all coastal communities know. This is a coastline that has seen its fair share of tragedy and loss. It would have been much worse were it not for the presence of the Skerries lifeboat, which was first established in 1854. The terrible risks these lifesavers take struck the Skerries community like a hammer blow in 1873. On a freezing February night, the Skerries crew scrambled to the aid of a distressed schooner, Sarah of Runcorn, as the ship was wrecked on the rocks at Balbriggan. The 12-man crew faced into snow, sleet and dangerous seas, but struggled on despite their boat repeatedly capsizing. They paid a heavy price. Tragically, only four of the crew made it home to their families that night. The Islands. Setting, nature, wildlife. The story of this part of the Dublin coast has been shaped just as much by its islands as by the mainland. At Skerries, the history and beauty of this part of the coastline have been greatly enhanced by its six nearby islands. It is no exaggeration to say that some are literally within touching distance, as the nearest, Red Island, isn't even an island anymore. Over the millennia, it has become connected to the mainland, the tide last separating it from Skerries proper in the 18th century. Today's visitor would recognise it as the rocky headland that has Skerries Pier and the RNLI station on it. The origins of the name Red Island are unclear. Some say it is named after the dyeing or barking of sails, which was a key industry in Skerries. A combination of 
bark from certain trees and a pitch-like substance were boiled over fires. This became a reddish-brown liquid and the sails were dipped into it and then taken to the island for drying. The dye leached out from the sails as they dried, causing the rocks and soil to become reddish, and so the island was named Red Island. Other stories say that the name comes from fishermen spreading out their red nets on the island to dry. Three more of the islands lie just a little further away, between 500 and 1500 metres off the coast. Shenick Island, St. Patrick's Island and Colt Island are collectively known as the Skerries Islands. Shenick Island is close enough that its shingle bar connects to the mainland at low tide. These islands are covered in vegetation like grass and brambles, with their highest point stretching just 13 metres above sea level. Furthest away, some seven kilometres off Skerries, are two more small islands. These granite outcrops springing from the Irish Sea play host to the famous Rockabill Lighthouse. Together, the two encompass less than a hectare. The larger of the two, home of the lighthouse, is known as the Rock. It is separated from its neighbour, the Bill, by a narrow channel. History resonates from all of these islands, but it is their value as precious wildlife habitats that make them particularly special today. The Skerries Islands and Rockabill are protected habitats, and it is easy to see why. During breeding season, the islands echo to the cries of a cacophony of seabirds as the islands are transformed into nurseries. The Skerries Islands are home to an internationally important breeding cormorant population, major colonies of shag and herring gulls, and a multitude of other species. Other birds arrive in winter to seek refuge on the islands, most notably hundreds of light-bellied Brent geese who travel all the way from the Arctic to get there. But when it comes to seabirds, Rockabill is arguably the jewel in the crown. During the spring and summer, it is home to thousands of terns. The breeding pairs include many common and arctic terns, but the roseate terns is particularly associated with Rockabill. Up to 1,200 pairs arrive here each year from West Africa, forming the largest roseate tern colony in Europe. In fact, they are so important that each year, tern wardens are sent to tiny Rockabill to protect the new tern parents. This conservation programme has helped to nurture the recovery of this rare seabird on Rockabill. The job of Tern Warden is advertised each year, so if a few weeks in the midst of a noisy and sometimes argumentative colony is for you, keep your eyes open and your hat on. Vikings and Saints Back in the mists of time, an early Irish analyst sat down to record some of the great events of the year 798 AD in Ireland. It was momentous occurrences off the coast of Skerries that dominated the news. The burning of Inishpatrick by the heathens, and they took the cattle tribute of the territories and broke the shrine of Dochana, and also made great incursions both in Ireland and in Alba. 
The Inish Patrick of this entry is St. Patrick's Island, also known locally as Church Island. The heathens were some of the very first Vikings to set foot on Irish shores. They were attracted to the island by the important early monastery which lay on the island's southern end and the riches they hoped to find within. The shrine they found there was that of Dochana, or Mochanuk, a saint who had travelled to Ireland from Britain in the 7th century, founding churches in places like Kilmuckridge, County Wexford and Gallon, County Offaly. Mochanuk was not the only saint of British origin associated with the island. Saint Patrick is said to have spent time here in 432 AD. It is a stay that is remembered through a geological feature known as St. Patrick's Footprint. Legend tells the story of its origin. While on the island, Patrick kept a goat to provide him with milk. When the saint was away preaching, some local Skerries people went to the island where they killed and ate the animal. Finding his goat gone, an enraged Patrick bounded from the island to the mainland in two great strides. The mark his foot left when he landed on Red Island is forever preserved in stone. It can be seen near the springboards. The religious presence on St. Patrick's Island returned in 1120. The remains of the priory established there by the Augustinians can still be seen. In 1148, a famous synod of bishops was held on the island to discuss reforming the Irish church. The Augustinians' presence remained for a hundred years until their community moved to nearby home Patrick on the mainland. But what of the Vikings? A clue to their fate lies in the name of the man who first helped the Augustinians to establish themselves on St. Patrick's Island in the 12th century. He was called Citric. His father was Murchad. While the name Citric is of Viking origin, Murchad is an Irish name. It is testament to what was by then an integrated community of Viking and Irish, known as the Hiberno-Norse. The Vikings had returned in the 9th century, but this time for good. Founding the town of Dublin, their area of influence soon extended over the north of the county. This territory became known as Finnegal, or Foreign Tribe, today known as Fingal. Along with names like those of Citric and of Fingal, the Viking influence extends to the name of Skerries itself. As we've already mentioned, Scare is the Old Norse word for a sea rock or reef. The Islands History and Architecture The Skerries coastline and islands were strongly influenced by the early church and the Vikings. But this is far from their only history. On Shenick Island lie ghostly traces of a promontory fort a defensive structure most commonly associated with Ireland's Iron Age people. Fainter still is the circular enclosure identified by infrared photography on Colt Island, perhaps the remains of a prehistoric or early medieval homestead. These earliest of features may be hard for us to see today, but there's no mistaking the mark left on the islands at the beginning of the 19th century. 
both Red Island and Shenick Island, were chosen to form part of Ireland's coastal defence against Napoleonic France. Martello towers were built on both islands, squat, circular fortresses that carried artillery on their roof. Constructed to provide all-round fire against enemy shipping, their design was inspired by a tower the Royal Navy engaged at Mortella, Corsica, in 1794. Built around 1805, both towers remained operational until 1874. In 1848, the Shenick Tower was being commanded by Ralph Allen Daniel of the Drogheda Barracks. In 1857, there were as many as 12 troops stationed there. At Red Island, a master gunner called Archibald Reed had charge of the tower between 1848 and 1874. This tower, which is also known as Skerry's Martello, has had a colourful history. After the military finally left, it became a home, then a coal depot, next to tea rooms, and up to the 1970s, it was a major feature of a holiday camp. A lighthouse was first requested to be built at Rockabill by the Drogheda Harbour Commissioners in 1837, but it was 1855 before plans were finally prepared. The task of construction was eventually given to the Burgress Company from Limerick. Workmen battled challenging and dangerous conditions to erect the lighthouse tower. Using granite from the Morn Mountains and local limestone from Milverton, the building inched upwards. When finally completed, it stood 83 feet high without its lantern. It was first lit at sunset on the 1st of July, 1860. An enthusiastic report claimed that its brilliance surpassed that of any other catoptric light on the East Coast. It remains lit today, adding greatly to the safety of shipping on this part of the Irish coast. For over 120 years, Rockabill Light was served by a team of six lightkeepers. They worked in two teams, four weeks on, four weeks off, and they lived in specially built homes close to the harbour. The long tradition of these Skerry's lighthouse men ended in 1989, when the last keeper left the island and Rockabill became fully automatic. Knights, Templars and the Sounds of Skerries Skerries is home to tales of marauding Vikings and daring pirates, but its medieval story is also filled with larger-than-life characters. Just to the southwest of the town lie the unassuming ruins of Baldongan Castle and Church. In the 13th century, this complex was a stronghold of one of the famed fighting orders of the Crusades, the Knights Templars. The Templars, officially the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, were founded in the Holy Land in the 12th century. Their initial role was to protect pilgrims in the Middle East, but as the years passed they became just as well known for their vast wealth and role in financing. Their end came in the 14th century, when the order was dissolved across Europe amidst wild charges of denying God and spitting on the cross. In reality, the great kings of Europe were after their wealth and eventually managed to secure it. Sites like Baldongan also played a key role in the defence of the Dublin hinterland, known in the medieval period as the Pale. 
Families like the Barnwalls, who at one time possessed Baldongan, became particularly associated with this defence. Over the years, there were plenty of threats, from the Gaelic Irish beyond the Pale to armies like that of Edward Bruce and his Scots. Baldongan and much of the Skerries area suffered greatly, particularly during the wars of the 17th century. But despite all, the local people endured. In fact, community stability was so great that something remarkable was preserved over centuries. The way the people spoke. Up until the 19th century, visitors to Skerries would have been struck by the peculiar dialect common among the locals. It was unique to Fingal, and so was known as Fingalian. Its origins can be traced all the way back in the medieval English brought to Skerries by the first post-Norman invasion settlers. As a result, Fingalian provides a tantalising linguistic glimpse into Dublin's medieval past. Some of its words have survived. For example, the use of the word worry for seaweed or bunk to hit or strike. One of the best-known survivals of the dialect comes from the Fingalian dance, a mid-17th-century poem. Its final verse allows us to imagine what medieval Fingalians may have been like. But fire take am, they made me a sham, and when I went home to me wife, and told her the chance of the maid of the dance, Peace thy prating, said she, for the leaf. Fungalian is no longer spoken around Skerries, but its rare survival from medieval into modern times is only matched by the Yola dialect of Wexford. There can surely be few more powerful windows to the past than hearing what those who have gone before may have sounded like. An agricultural and industrial hinterland. The story of Skerries may be intimately linked to the sea, but one of its most striking heritage sites tells of its industrial past. Visitors to the five-acre Skerries Mills complex can explore a landscape that boasts two windmills, a watermill, mill pond, mill races, and a brant area of wetland. Flour has been milled at this site since the Middle Ages. The monks of Homepatrick Priory laboured here to make their daily bread until the 16th century. The modern water mill and its associated buildings date to the 19th century and now host a heritage centre exploring the agricultural and industrial history of the site. The most spectacular element of Skerry's mills are its two working windmills. The largest, appropriately titled the Great Windmill, is almost 50 feet tall. It was first built around 1750. The Great Windmill boasts five sails, one more than its neighbour, the Small Windmill. Despite its name, it rises to a height of some 40 feet. The sighting of the Small Windmill also provides a clue to some of the earlier history of this special site. It sits within an older circular enclosure, marked as a fort on early mapping. It may well be the remains of a farmstead used by people who toiled on the soil here more than a thousand years ago. Indeed, the working fields of Skerry's mills have produced still earlier evidence. In recent years, 
Field walking has uncovered the stone tools of Skerry's Neolithic and Bronze Age inhabitants, the first people who farmed this land. For those who didn't find employment in places like Skerry's Mills or on the sea, there were other options. Hundreds of Skerry's women in the 19th and early 20th century made their living from embroidery, especially what was called tambour work. This was a type of decorative bead embroidery which took its name from the drum-shaped frame first used when stitching. Tambour is the French word for drum. Generations of Skerry's girls and women toiled long hours embroidering in this way. During the daytime, they stitched outside their cottages, at night by the light of their candles and codfish oil lamps. Another of the important industries that set Skerry's apart were its quarries. The best known was at Milverton. A major source of limestone for many years, Ships laden with Milverton's stony cargo plied their trade out of Skerry's harbour. The limestone was also used closer to home, in major construction projects like the Fastnet Lighthouse. Another of Milverton's important features was its large lime kiln. This massive oven operated into the 20th century, converting limestone into powdered lime. To fire it, a special coal called comb had to be shipped into the harbour on schooners. The lime it produced was put to use in almost every conceivable way, everything from whitewashing houses to conditioning agricultural soil. Milverton Quarry closed its gates for the final time in 2009. Landlords and Layout the story of Skerries and its development was long tied to the great families who dominated the area. Many have come and gone over the years. There was Sir Michael Laville, who was granted the manor of Skerries in 1320. There were the Barnwalls and de Birminghams of Baldungan, and the Fitzpatricks, the Lords of Hoth and Earls of Thormund. All had their role to play in the story of this locality. Of them all, one family stands apart in the story of modern Skerries, the Hamiltons. A stroll along Strand Street brings visitors face to face with one of the most prominent and recognisable landmarks in Skerries, and a lasting reminder of the Hamiltons. Known locally simply as the Monument, its limestone pillar was designed to be the centrepiece of the entire town. It retains this prominence today. The monument was built in the 1860s in honour of James Hans Hamilton. As well as being the local landlord, he had been an MP for County Dublin. The Hamilton Monument claims it was erected by his tenants in testimony of their esteem for him as a kind friend and benevolent landlord. We can but wonder if that was the real view that all of the Skerries locals had of him. Whatever the truth of it, it is perhaps appropriate that a monument to a Hamilton retains its prominence. The modern town layout and the major development of the harbour all took shape under their watch. Improving Skerries made sense for the Hamiltons, as it also helped to improve their finances. Its economic potential was clear to them when they first acquired the area in 1721. 
Documents from the period show that ownership of the town and port of Skerries, as well as the four Skerries Islands, was only part of the substantial land deal. They could also claim customs on fish, and customs of three shillings and four pence on every great ship coming from France, Spain and Scotland, and four pence for everyone out of England. It is little wonder that increasing the prominence of the harbour was at the forefront of their thoughts. The Hamiltons may be the family most associated with Skerries, but the monument is not the only impressive reminder of the major families who once dominated here. Just north of Skerries lies the majestic stately home known as Ardgillen Castle, which sits on a 194-acre estate. This magnificent building, which was first built in 1738, has 13 bays and is three stories high. It is surrounded by a domain that boasts a walled garden, a timber glasshouse, courtyards, ice houses and extensive parkland. For more than two centuries, this was the home of the Taylors, who lived here until 1962. Today, it is in the care of Fingal County Council. Open to the public, visitors can enjoy all the house and its surroundings have to offer, including the breathtaking views of the Morn and Cooley Mountains and Rockabill Lighthouse. A revolutionary role. The period between 1914 and 1923 were seminal years in the modern history of Ireland. In that short span, the country experienced global war, an insurrection, an independence struggle and civil conflict. Skerries was touched by them all, often in extremely dramatic and consequential ways. As with much of the rest of the island, Large numbers of Skerry's men took up the rallying cry issued in 1914 and marched off to far-flung battlefields. Skerry's position also ensured that the local population had to face up to the realities of potential attack. This part of the coast was seen as a potential invasion point and locals were issued the unsettling advice that should the Germans arrive, they should retreat inland, destroying anything of value as they went. Just how close the war could be was apparently demonstrated in February 1915 when a German U-boat was plainly discernible between Skerries and Loch Shinney about a mile offshore. Throughout the conflict, local landmarks played a major role in enticing young Skerries men into the forces. The Hamilton Monument was a favoured venue for recruiting speeches. However close the war came to Skerries, it was the impact of far-off fighting that had left the most lasting legacy on the town. Local organisations did their best to support those recovering from injuries, such as Skerry's Golf Club, who put on entertainments for wounded soldiers. But many Skerry's men never came home. Some streets bore the mark of their loss for generations. Strand Street alone has melancholy representation in the names of men on the Menengate Memorial in Belgium, the Thiepfel Memorial in France, and the Helles Memorial in Gallipoli. Skerries was every bit as involved in the struggle for independence. During the 1916 Rising, Irish volunteers from the 5th Fingal Battalion, including men from the Skerries Company, 
attacked the RIC barracks at Ashburn. The majority of the fighting that week was focused on Dublin, but Skerry's strategic importance was again underlined. As part of their efforts to suppress the rebellion, British reinforcements were landed in the town to secure it from capture. During the War of Independence, numerous men and women from Skerries served in both the IRA and Cumannamon, taking part in actions like the attack on Rush RIC barracks and the burning of Skerries Coast Guard Station. Some, like volunteer Joe Sherlock of Cabra Terrace, gave their lives for the struggle. But perhaps the best-known event of the conflict in Skerries came during the Civil War. It occurred on the 31st of July, 1922, in the Grand Hotel, which once operated on Strand Street near the monument. The stillness of the Skerries morning was broken when National Army soldiers burst into one of the hotel rooms, intent on capturing its occupants. In the struggle that ensued, shots were fired, and one of the men fell, mortally wounded. He was none other than Harry Boland, one of the leading figures of the Irish Revolution. Boland had been a close confidant of both Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera, and had played a key role in securing arms for the IRA. He was also the TD for Mayo South Roscommon, and sided with the anti-treaty IRA during the Civil War. This was the reason the raid at the Grand Hotel took place. Harry Boland died of his wounds on the 1st of August 1922, and is buried in Glasnevin Cemetery. Getting away from it all. Today, Skerries attracts large numbers of visitors who come to enjoy all that the picturesque seaside town has to offer. Its well-earned reputation as a retreat from the hustle and bustle stretches back well over a century. In the early 1900s, readers of the national press were told of its attractions and the many delightful features of this popular holiday resort. Having cemented its place as a major resort destination by the early 20th century, Skerries didn't look back. The town's best-known attraction arrived in 1947, when the Red Island Holiday Camp first opened its doors. Along with its 250 rooms, the camp also featured a dance hall, theatre, mini-golf course, a sun lounge and a bar. A week in the resort set visitors back £7.10, shillings, a sum willingly paid by thousands of eager guests. As well as the seaside attractions, Red Island holidaymakers could also take advantage of day trips to the likes of Glendalough and the Hill of Tara, though, of course, all for an additional fee. The fashion for resorts like the Red Island Holiday Camp began to fall away with the advent of charter air travel in the 1960s. This ultimately sounded the death knell for Red Island, and the resort was demolished in 1980. Today, there is little to remind visitors to Skerries that it was ever there, although the 200-year-old Red Island Martello Tower survived to see both its rise and fall. Though Skerries is no longer a major resort destination, it continues to attract large numbers of day-trippers and short-stay visitors. Taking advantage of the quick bus and rail connections from Dublin, they now come to enjoy the sights and sounds of Strand Street, stretch their legs on the long beaches, or take in attractions like Skerry's Mills and Ardgillen Castle. 
A vibrant festival culture ensures there are always reasons to keep coming back to this charming seaside town, which continues to chart its own course along the rocky shores of the North Dublin coast. Conclusion We hope you have enjoyed exploring the stories of Skerries with us. If you would like to find out more about the town and some of the events and activities that take place here, why not check out the Skerries page of the Fingal website at www.fingal.ie. The historical research work of the Skerries Historical Society formed an integral part of creating this guide. You can learn more about them and about Skerries at www.oldskerries.ie. This audio guide was written and produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Fingal County Council. The audio guide was written by Damien Shields and edited by Roisin Burke. Narration was by Gerry O'Brien and the guide was produced in Bluebird Studios, County Dublin with sound engineer Declan Lonigan and producer Tara Clark. If you would like to hear similar audio guides from other heritage sites around Ireland, please visit abartaheritage.ie.